This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. On February the 28th, 2003, an American businessman was admitted to the Vietnam French Hospital of Hanoi. He had an atypical pneumonia. Within weeks, the patient and six other healthcare professionals would be dead from a previously unknown virus. The virus was SARS. Ultimately, the outbreak was contained, but we must remain on alert. To help us, I'm delighted that we have with us Professor Shan Griffiths. Professor Griffiths is Emeritus Professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Visiting Professor at Imperial College London, and Chair of the Public Health England Global Health Committee. Professor Griffiths co-chaired the Hong Kong SARS government inquiry in 2003. So, Professor Griffiths, you're, you're welcome. Can we start off by asking you, what exactly is SARS? SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and it's a viral uh, condition. The cause is a coronavirus. It's also an unusual condition in that uh, the cases in 2003 are essentially the only set of cases that we know about that had this that caused this particular version of the disease. Okay, and how would a a, a clinician recognise an affected patient? Well, it was quite difficult back in 2003 initially because people were thinking they were looking for bird flu in Hong Kong. Uh, they were expecting another, more cases of bird flu. And in Hong Kong, when the cases were admitted, they, they were basically with flu-like symptoms, high temperature, uh, particularly with atypical pneumonia shown on x-ray, shortness of breath, uh, and then failure to respond to um, any treatment. So if you have a case which you don't really understand, you need an index of suspicion, particularly if someone has travelled in the Far East. Okay. And what tests might you request if you did have an index of suspicion? What you would do is exclude other conditions in the first instance. And then uh, if you still have a high index of suspicion, you'd ask the virologists to run the specific tests for SARS, um, which are in development at the current time. Okay. Because you can do an RT-PCR, you can do serology, uh, uh, and you can do a viral culture. But for a long time, they didn't know what the condition was. And there were all sorts of theories as to what was causing this atypical pneumonia. So you exclude all other causes of of pneumonia in the first instance and then run the tests that are specific for SARS through the virology lab. Okay, great. Thank you. And if you did suspect or diagnose a patient, what isolation measures are necessary? Well, you'd immediately... um, uh, isolate the patient, uh, barrier nursing, um, because SARS is transmitted through a droplet infection. And so you reduce any way in which droplets would be uh, transmitted between the patient and anyone else. I'm guessing, depending on where exactly the patient is, the, the patient would need to be referred into a specialist unit. Yes, usually in a negative pressure barrier nursing would be required so a patient would be referred if you think you've got a case of SARS and SARS is very rare so Mm. you really need to have excluded other causes 
the patient needs to be isolated and we need to take a um, high level of precaution to prevent spread of infection. Because in SARS, uh, there is a phenomenon called the super spreader. And in the SARS epidemic in 2003, there were some patients, and no one, still we don't understand what it was about these specific patients, but some patients were super spreaders, meaning that they spread uh, the infection particularly effectively across to other people. And the super spreader, you really need to protect in case a patient is a super spreader. How did they spread the infection or who did they spread it to, the super spreaders? Was it close family members or? Uh, Not necessarily. There are some classic cases, uh, two in particular in Hong Kong. One was the Hotel Metropole where there was uh, somebody from the airline who turned out to be infected, who stayed on the eighth floor of the Hotel Metropole, and then subsequently um, other guests on that floor who were actually en route to various countries such as Vietnam, Canada, the Philippines. They were the vectors for spread of the disease. And so for quite a long time in Hong Kong, they used to cover up the lift buttons with plastic in case droplets had got onto the lift buttons. But that was purely, I think, a precautionary measure that was more symbolic than anything else. The other case of a super spreader that comes to mind is the patient on the cardiac ward who developed an atypical pneumonia and a heart murmur. And so all the medical students and junior doctors went to listen to the murmur. And it was actually that group of patients because it's quite unusual for healthcare workers to get sick, that that group of junior doctors and students started to get the flu-like symptoms, and some of them went on to develop full-blown SARS. And that created the index of suspicion that the Prince of Wales Hospital was dealing with something atypical here. It wasn't just your average pneumonia, and that patient happened to be a super spreader. Okay. And what measures were taken ultimately to close down the outbreak? The first thing you do is alert the population and to take precautionary measures. So hand washing, for example. In Hong Kong, people were wearing masks. Now, there's some question whether or not that was worth doing or not. But if you had a cold, making sure that you used a tissue and threw the tissue away... The, the general hygiene is one of the most important things um, for s- stopping droplet uh, spread. And then there was the isolation of the patients. And in fact, some of the staff who were looking after the patients isolated themselves and stayed in local hotel rather than going home to try to prevent spread into the community. Uh, schools were closed. So in general, there was a heightened awareness in the population, more awareness of the need for hygiene, an index of suspicion amongst the GPs, quick referral, not to the general hospital, but to the specialist units that were established. And within the specialist units that were established, then the the barrier nursing and the precautionary principle applied within the hospitals. So you have to take a whole system approach if you think you've got an outbreak such as SARS. Okay, and and relatives of the affected patients, do they also need to be isolated? They don't need to be isolated if they're asymptomatic. What what they were advised to do is to just stay at home 
And so there were quite a lot of people staying at home for five, ten days to see if it developed into a full-blown case or not and and monitor the temperature. So the doctor will instruct you to monitor your temperature, monitor your symptoms, and if nothing untoward occurs or symptoms are just mild, then you don't need to be put into an isolation unit. Hong Kong actually took a fairly dramatic step once the disease had spread into the community because of the housing conditions, very it has the highest density of housing in, um, I think, probably in the world. It's, that's the claim, anyway. Amoy Gardens was a tower block, and they decided that because uh, a number of cases had occurred in the tower block because there was a super spreader staying within the tower block, and they think that the infection spread through the uh, stack pipes, the sewage pipes of the block, they decided to put the whole of the tower block into quarantine in the countryside. And this was really questioned by many other people, but it fitted culturally within Hong Kong to do this. And uh, in fact, um, what what they decided was they put a note under everybody's door saying, be ready at six o'clock in the morning and we're going to take you to uh, isolation facilities in the countryside. And there was huge compliance to that. So you can... Um, isolate and quarantine but it's questionable whether or not that is of any value. Okay and once again talking about the outbreak in Hong Kong, what would you say were the main lessons learned from it? What do you think they could have done better or more quickly? Well in our um, in the government report that we did we commended Hong Kong because it was an unknown, unexpected disease that appeared. Uh, we commended the system in general, but there were things that needed to be done. One was that the infectious disease response wasn't good enough and the emergency response wasn't good enough. So since then, training is in place. So I think it's very important that everybody is everybody in any hospital or any general practice environment is aware of what to do should you have a case that you think might be SARS or a similar disease. So one thing was training. Another were there weren't enough facilities and so the hospitals have been upgraded and across China hospitals have been upgraded. More research was needed into infectious diseases and so both in Hong Kong and mainland China there's been a huge investment in research into influenza type diseases just to try to understand because the main thing about SARS was that they think that it spread as a zoonotic spread that it was a mutation of the virus the coronavirus from an animal called a civet cat which was sold in the markets in southern China sold to eat sort of funny looking little thing that looks a bit like a guinea pig they think that the infection had spread from animals to man, and we're very aware that if you girls start to get transfer of zoonotic diseases from animal to man, then th- that opens up a whole huge uh, area of risk. Uh, so more science, more understanding, a lot of work on the genetics, and then, of course, development of the vaccine. There was no vaccine, there still is no vaccine, but should there be a vaccine, that uh, is, is another area of science. So in general, the response was good, but more education, more education of the public, more education of the staff, awareness of what to do should you have an infectious disease. So drills, emergency measures, more capacity, availability to change routine capacity into special into isolation capacity, and better understanding of the disease.
Okay, and what cultural factors were important or can be important in an outbreak of this kind? One of the other areas that, of course, was problematic was the flow of information. And sometimes people don't like to admit that there's uh, a, a condition that they don't know how to control. And that was the case in southern China and information about the disease didn't flow very freely. Initially, information was flowing up to Beijing and then out again very slowly. Since then, the WHO have set up a better information system. So there is culturally, I think people now recognize that if there is an unknown, if there is a new disease, the world needs to know because that will decrease the risk. And doctors thousands of miles away need to know because of air travel. Air travel is a means of, of one of the main vectors here in, in the SARS story. Culturally, there was also the use of boiling vinegar to keep the germs out of the house. And, okay, that may be, that may be useful, but it isn't enough. And so people do need to present to the doctor with the symptoms to make sure that uh, if there is any treatment available, you get the treatment, or if you need to be isolated, you can be isolated. Culturally, there was the diet issue for in, in China. It was the eating of wild animals from the market, and that's a particularly prevalent custom in parts of southern China. Uh, and the, the market conditions have now been improved, and it's unlike, uh, I'm not sure that it's likely that you get civic cats for sale in the same way that they were for sale at, at that time. In um, the Far East, people wear masks if they have a viral a virus of any sort and you'll often see people in shops or on buses wearing masks and that's often to protect other people not to protect yourself so you wear a mm. mask to signify that you've got a viral, viral condition it doesn't necessarily stop the virus from spreading in fact it may even make it spread more effectively a, mm. a soggy mask is not necessarily good protection so I think there are different different things and I suppose some countries hand washing is quite difficult to do to achieve as a means of control of infection so that's another another cultural issue okay and a common question that we get asked about this disease but also about other unusual diseases is about reporting and whether you should wait till you've made the diagnosis and report then or report when you're when you have a suspicion if you have an unknown disease like this you, and you've got high index of suspicion, there isn't actually a definitive test if you don't actually know what the cause is. So it's actually much better to report to the local PHE. In England, it would be PHE. Let them know that there is an anxiety. Much better to be in the dialogue than to say, I've got to solve it myself first. Um, but you should definitely, if there's anything that you're anxious about, uh, seek advice and alert Okay. And treatment, is there any treatment? Just symptomatic treatment. You, you know, obviously try and bring down the, the, the high fever. It's a viral pneumonia. It's not really any treatment you can give other than um, positive pressure ventilation if necessary. But that's not really treatment. That's really symptomatic relief. Most treatment is symptomatic relief. Quite a lot of the cases who died were older people in, um, and frail people and people who are immunocompromised. So again, if, if a state of nutrition is, is good, a disease like this is less likely to get a, a, a very strong grip than um, 
if nutrition is poor. Okay, okay, thank you. That's that's very helpful. And are people contagious sometimes before they develop symptoms? A bit difficult to tell. They're almost quite sure because one of the questions we kept asking was well perhaps it's in the community, perhaps the subclinical levels. There's some really fascinating work on the genotype, the way the genotype changed through the course of the disease from being not infective to being infective to being non-infective again. And and the genetic sequencing um, and and the phylogenetic studies are, are very fascinating reading. Uh, it doesn't answer your question, but it does mean that what you could see was a disease that was mutating and mutating quickly. So a disease that came from animals, possibly mutated into a form that was then uh, caught by humans, mutated and then has died out as an inf- infective agent. And people can't find it again. So where is it? Is our question. Will it come back, do you think? Oh, well, that's <laughs> that's the question, isn't it? I mean, MERS is a coronavirus, uh, in and the um, reservoir is the camels in the Middle East, but it's not the same as SARS, but it is a coronavirus. These viruses, they come and go, uh, and so animal husbandry is important. Conditions in the wet markets are important. All of these things, if we take precautionary measures, hopefully it won't come back. Okay, thank you. And in terms of differential diagnosis, I'm guessing it's other viral pneumonias or atypical... Flus, yeah, it's flu-like. And I think in the Far East, the anxiety is always, uh, have we got bird flu again? Because that was one of the things that um, there'd been cases of uh, bird flu in in Hong Kong and, and that was the anxiety. So people immediately thought that uh, this was bird flu and of course, the conditions in the wet markets, uh, the whole buying of live chickens is now controlled. You can't go to the market and buy the live chickens in the same way you used to be able to, because more because of the threat of bird flu than of SARS. The SARS experience meant the reaction to H1N1 was very much more extreme in Hong Kong than it was in other places because... Uh, of the experience of both bird flu and SARS. So H1N1, the response to H1N1 was um, quarantine in the hotel, whereas in America, where H1N1 had already spread into the community, it was um, symptomatic treatment of the flu-like conditions. Apart from the the content that we've covered, any other questions you get asked about SARS by doctors or other healthcare professionals? One of the triggers for realising that SARS was a different sort of disease was that healthcare workers were affected. And and so that's quite an unusual factor. And people say, um, how can we avoid that happening again? Well, it, it was such an atypical environment. You probably can't other than a routine good hygiene, washing hands and those sorts of things. I think SARS was hugely culturally important but the other fascinating thing about SARS was that the way it impacted on the economy of Hong Kong Uh, so you asked me earlier about cultural issues and saying that people don't always like to admit that they've got an outbreak or something they can't control and they will point to the fact that in Hong Kong the GDP fell dramatically most of the cases were March, April tailing off in May, GDP reacted June, July, August, and it took a while to 
to build the economy back up again. People, tourism was a mainstay and people didn't want to go to Hong Kong in case they got SARS. So that's another point to take into account. Okay, thank you. That's interesting. Last question. If you had one single piece of advice to give to a healthcare professional about SARS, what would it be, I wonder? Don't forget it could be in your differential diagnosis after you've excluded most other causes. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Griffiths. Uh, That's really helpful. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognise, report and refer affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at our content on infectious diseases. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.